Today on the Women Mind the Water Art of the Series on WomenMindTheWater.com, I'm speaking with Vicki Nichols Goldstein, who founded the nonprofit Inland Ocean Coalition. It was her belief that community-based ocean conservation belongs to everyone, not just people who live along the coast. Vicki's career has included writing documents to help establish the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, serving as executive director for Save Our Shores, and founding Inland Ocean Coalition. In all these endeavors, she has made a positive contribution to ocean protection. The Women Mind the Water Artivist Series podcast on womenmindthewater.com engages artists in conversation about their work and explores their connection with the ocean. Through their stories, Women Mind the Water hopes to inspire and encourage action to protect the ocean and her creatures. Today, I am speaking with Vicki Nichols Goldstein. Her impressive credentials include a master's degree in marine policy from Yale University and working with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to co-write documents for the designation of the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Vicki served as the executive director of the California-based Save Our Shores. When she moved to Colorado, she founded the Colorado Ocean Coalition. In 2017, Vicki rebranded it as the Inland Ocean Coalition. Inland Ocean Coalition empowers citizens wherever they live to be leaders and make positive contributions to ocean protection. Welcome, Vicki. I applaud you for your vision to create Inland Ocean Coalition. I should state here that I recently went through Inland Ocean Coalition training. I'm now certified Inland Ocean Coalition ambassador. This means that I have firsthand experience with the training. I was impressed by the variety of topics covered during the sessions and the global reach of the people enrolled in the program. But what I think impressed me the most is that you found an impactful way to promote ocean conservation for people living along the coast and those living far away. I'm looking forward to hearing about your journey and having you share information on why anyone can make a difference, no matter where they live or what their background is. Let's begin by learning something about where you grew up and where you found a passion for the ocean. Pam, thank you so much for that great introduction. And it is a, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, I grew up across the street from my grandparents, my mom and my pop-up. What my pop-up always did or instilled up was he would go into the forest, he would go to the coast, he'd go into the ocean, and he would take, but he always felt that it was important to give back. So one of my earliest uh, memories is when he would trap snapping turtles and we would have a harvest day. Kids would, you know, grandkids would help and kids would help. And um, afterwards, we would collect the eggs. My job was to help bury the eggs water them, and then when the, turtle, the uh, tiny snapping turtles hatched, collect them to then take them back into the wetlands so there would be that cycle that would continue going. And so that was very impactful for me, and I've always had that philosophy that if you are going to take from nature, you have to give something back. So when did you decide to devote your studies to marine science? <laughs> Growing up, 
I love the ocean. You know, I went swimming and clamming and crabbing and boating. And so I decided to go to college in Maine on the coast of Maine at College of the Atlantic. And I was attracted to that because it was a, a human ecology degree. And I chose to focus in on marine biology because I just always loved the ocean. So I thought, well, let's really try to formalize that. So I spent four years um, as an undergraduate at College of the Atlantic. And then when I graduated, I had been volunteering for their Natural History Museum. So they asked me if I would um, stay on and work at the museum. And then it turned out that the director um, had some health issues. And then I became acting director, and then that moved into a full-time director position. So I stayed on the island for another four or five years. And while I was there, I started up the field studies program for children to try to get kids out into the wetlands, uh, out into the ocean, get them kayaking, and learning about nature and learning about the ocean and all the wonderful things um, that this ocean provides for us. So it's 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 been a pretty consistent theme since I was a kid. Quite a coup in getting a job to work for NOAA. How did you come to get a job co-writing the designation documents <laughs> for the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary? <laughs> so after I um, I decided I kind of hit the glass ceiling living on an island running a natural history museum and then I was also adjunct faculty teaching college students how to do um, education and interpretive techniques so I decided it was time to move on so I applied to grad school at Yale got into their master's program and uh, at the completion of that I was in my final couple of months and I set up appointments with NOAA um, in DC to go down there and interview them on marine protected areas. You know, how do you designate a marine protected area? What is the process? How much citizen engagement is included, biology, et cetera, et cetera. And by the time I finished my three-day interview with them, they offered me a job. So I always tell people, like, reach out, you know, get to know people, get to know the area that you want to work in establish relationships um, because basically that was really key on how I was able to get my first job out of my master's program. And then when I was working at NOAA, um, there were a variety of things that I had a choice to do and I was very excited about the potential for the designation of the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. So I was able to focus my time on that, uh, on that project doing the um, EIS, or the Draft Environmental Impact Statement, and then doing all of the responses to um, comments. So when you have a document, you put it out to the public, they respond back, and then the agency has to compile all of those responses. So that was really my first big job at NOAA. Well, as a bi-coastal girl, speaking to a bi-coastal girl, I grew <laughs> up in New York, and I moved to California. Uh, what is the story behind your move to Colorado? And did you have any concerns about moving inland? I know that when I moved away from California, I went through a long period of withdrawal. In fact, I don't think I got over it until I moved to Maine. Now it sounds like we're <laughs> dancing in each other's footsteps here. 
Yeah, I imagine that my longing would have been significantly reduced had I had an idea to create something like Inland Ocean Coalition. What led you to your vision to create such an entity? Well, after I left NOAA, I then went to California, and I was there for 10 years running Save Our Shores and started up a number of programs. And uh, during that time, I married a really cute guy, and we had two children, and that uh, guy that I met in grad school got a job at the University of Colorado. So I was crestfallen, heartbroken, mm -hmm. just really um, quite upset to realize that we were moving way in the middle of the country. So we moved, we got the kids all settled in, um, got the house, and I started researching where I would work, assuming that there was going to be an organization or an agency somewhere in Colorado that would actually look at the connection between what was happening inland and the ocean. And I spent a year researching that, and uh, sadly, there was no such organization. So I thought, well, be careful what you wish for. All the years that I was working on ocean conservation, either on the West Coast or the East Coast, I'd been wondering, how do you get people in Kansas or Colorado or Wyoming to care about the ocean, right. especially after they've gone to the ocean, gotten really inspired, and then gone back home? So I figured, well, this is my chance to figure out um, how to do it. So it was really my inspiration of moving here, realizing there wasn't something for me, and then designing it and implementing it. So what was your initial vision for the group? Well, my initial vision was, you know, if you can get people in a community to care about the ocean, they can start doing things locally that would make an impact. Like, you know, for example, plastic pollution, just having that awareness about, you know, how to recycle, you know, carry your own water bottle, things that people know about now. But 10 years ago in Colorado, there was really no connection to how the heck is that going to affect the ocean? The other thing I wanted to do was to encourage political leaders to vote back in D.C. pro-ocean, pro-climate. And many of those congressional leaders they didn't think they had any constituents in the inland states that cared about the ocean. So having people in geographic regions inland communicating with their House of Representatives leaders or their senators, my goal was to get the legislative leaders enthusiastic by saying, hey, I've got constituents, so I'm going to go vote when I have a chance to be on the Hill for this piece of legislation or that one that would promote and protect the ocean. And that was sort of my two concepts when I got started. So how did you go about recruiting people? And why do you think... Parties, parties, parties. Ah. <laughs> so I started out um, with this idea of blue drinks, a social. You know, literally, I would call up a bar and say, hey, if I can bring some people in for a social, you know, would you give us a discount or would you create a special blue drink 
and then donate those proceeds. So um, we started having blue drinks every month. Um, this was obviously before COVID. It sort of, it kind of fell off after COVID or during COVID. But yes, um, having blue drinks every month in different geographic areas and then our volunteers who um, learned from us, who took our training, they would hold their own blue drinks in their community. And it just kind of started happening that people would have a glass of wine or a beer and start talking. And you've got a, you would get a teacher with a university professor or an underwater photographer talking with a dive shop owner. So it was a really great way to mix people up who either somehow liked the ocean or worked in the ocean space or had hobbies around the ocean to come together and start kind of brainstorming about what we can do as a community to protect and promote the ocean. And it worked. Apparently it did. <laughs> so um, what was the impetus for changing the name from the Colorado Ocean Coalition to Inland Ocean Coalition? The impetus was primarily the volunteers that we had in other states. So we had people that would start chapters up in Utah, um, upstate New York, Arizona. They started contacting me and saying, Vicki, I mean, this is ridiculous. We're in Wyoming. How can we possibly fall under the Colorado Ocean Coalition? I can see that, yeah. Yes. So then in um, 2017, we said, okay, well, this is clearly no longer just a Colorado organization. It's much bigger, and it really has the mission um, that goes beyond a state. And so that was the impetus to call it the Inland Ocean Coalition. I think we're up to 36 countries now that uh, we have volunteers in. And the funny thing is, it's not, um, I, it's not just coastal people. Um, excuse me, it's not just inland people. There are people, for example, we have a, a nice group of volunteers that went through the training that um, are on the island of Roatan. Uh, you know, we have people in California along, uh, you know, Rhode Island in the state. So it, it, it really, I mean, someday we might even change it to another name. But um, the idea was, yeah, you don't have to see the ocean to protect it. You don't have to be living on the coast. There's something for everyone to do to make a positive difference. Clearly, there's a passion there that matches yours. What is your organization doing today to empower people to make a difference? Well, we are continuing with our Inland Ocean uh, Ambassador training, and then we have enrichments every month, and we're encouraging people who are trained to go into their community and do things that are meaningful to them with our assistance and some of the tools that we have been able to provide them. So a um, couple of examples. Um, we have a, a petroleum sunscreen ban initiative that we are working on in Honduras, in Roatan. Um, I'm working with a group of students um, who are here in Colorado on deep sea mining for them to understand all of the pros and the cons. And we'll be putting on a webinar in that um, arena. We have other people that are part of NERDLE watches in different states, so they are going out and helping to collect these virgin plastic pellets that are being transported around the United States uh, and internationally, um, which is the feedstock for single-use plastics, and trying to get them out there collecting it, 
to get them out of the environment, and then also collecting data that can be used for policy initiatives to help ban some of these substances that are going into the environment. So there's lots of different activities. There's different cleanups. There's events. It's just, it's really remarkable when you look at the number of um, graduates, including uh, you who are doing your podcast. So it's, it's really neat to see people doing great things um, and working together as a team as well. Do you know how many members Inland Ocean Coalition has? And do you have any metric on how active they are? Um, we don't really have a formal membership situation. Uh, we have supporters. So, oh gosh, you know, we have thousands of supporters. And, you know, it's funny when you have volunteers. I think any organization, especially an organization that doesn't have a facility like a museum or a nature center, it's... Um, if you don't have a gathering spot, people tend to have come and go in cycles. So somebody might be involved for two or three years and then move off into a new arena. And um, so I think uh, my staff has been keeping track of that. I don't have that at the tip of my of my fingers, but I, I do know at any given time, uh, we have hundreds of volunteers that are actively working on projects that promote the ocean. Well, you used to be the executive director, but I gather you've stepped down and moved into director of special projects. So what does that mean for you? What are the special projects that you're working on? So one of the special projects that we are working on currently is the project I just mentioned about the Rowatan sunscreen ban. And we're using that as a pilot project to see if we could get that passed with the help of the dive shops and the businesses um, in, in Roatan with the idea that that could be a blueprint for other areas. And it doesn't seem like it's necessarily that huge of a project when you think about it, but when you consider that on an annual basis, you know, thousands of pounds of these toxic petrochemical sunscreens are going into the ocean environment. And many of those areas are very close to coral reefs. And oxybenzone, octanoxate, a lot of the materials that are in these sunscreens are really an herbicide. So when you put these herbicides into the ocean near a coral reef, it really attacks the plant base because a coral is a symbiotic relationship between a plant and an animal. So you already have the stresses of warming oceans, non-point pollution, and then you have this low-hanging fruit. If we could get people more aware of this, they're now dumping all of these chemicals in that they really don't have to because there are alternatives. So that's one big project that we've been working on. And then the other is um, just doing a lot of the policy work that we have been really promoting with, um, for example, the 30 by 30, the uh, America the Beautiful Act. So we've been working for years really trying to get that um, highlighted by the administration. So they've adopted that. So now we're working with our partners and our collaborators to try to get more national marine sanctuaries implemented in the U.S. and additional marine protected areas um, set aside as, as areas of special concern where there'll be more no-take areas around the world's oceans. Um, and so that takes a lot of coordination and communications with different groups around the world to really kind of get that promoted and getting communities engaged to help facilitate that achievement. As you're pointing out, the ocean, which is 
two thirds of our planet has many challenges facing it. We mentioned plastic pollution, you men uh, mentioned, um, well, you didn't mention acidification, but it's part of global warming. Mm -hmm. and, and there's so many others. So how do you balance educating people about these challenges with keeping them hopeful that they can make a difference? Well, I, I deal personally with a lot of um, college students and elementary students. I speak frequently. Um, and I think that having a sense of um, optimism is very important. There are challenges and we know it, but I think the exciting thing is, is we know what to do. We just have to create the political support to get the right things done. Um, six, seven years ago, we would not be sitting in Colorado talking about ocean protection. You know, people thought I was really wacky when I started this up back in 2011. Now it's become a, a you know, like, oh, that's great. You know, the more people that know about it, the more aware we are and the more that we can get done. So having an awareness of all the challenges, I think are, it's very, very important, but also having the sense that we know how to fix it. So if we just get more engagement and really try to work with our, within our political framework to get legislation, regulations, and laws, and then have enforcement, there's a lot that we could do. And also with plastic pollution, we're getting closer and closer to creating an, excuse me, an international plastic treaty. So we're I think that's very optimistic that the whole idea of plastic pollution has now reached an international level where we're all working together to really try to get on top of it. I hope so. Finally, I'd appreciate it if you'd offer our listeners suggestions on how they can be successful advocates for the ocean. Well, I think the probably the most important thing is do what you feel good about, like like if you feel like your contribution is biking more and driving less and using less you know, fossil fuels, that is helping the ocean. Because as you know, as we burn these fossil fuels, the carbon dioxide goes up into the atmosphere, goes back down into the ocean, and it creates the acidity change, which is what you were talking about, ocean acidification, where it's just changing the pH, and it's making it harder and harder for animals to create their shells and do what they need to do in the ocean. Um, if your thing is um, education and communication, you know, talk about it with your friends. If it's plastic, you know, carry your own water bottle and your bags. But there's always something for everyone to do, number one. So, and then two is just educate yourself so you are aware. And then um, I love to suggest to people to, you know, write their congressional leader especially if you're living inland and your, your people, your political leaders really don't hear from their constituents about oceans, it's always really cool to be able to drop a postcard saying, hey, I live in such and such area, your district, I love the ocean, I, I, I know the importance of keeping healthy watersheds that then drain to the ocean, and letting those leaders know that they have those constituents in areas where they might not expect it. So just being educated, and active and willing to just be able to talk about it really goes a long way. Well, I am really pleased that you accepted my invitation to be on the Women Mind the Water Artivist Series podcast. I hope our discussion helps listeners understand 
wherever they live, they can make a meaningful contribution to protecting the ocean. I'd like to remind listeners that I've been speaking with Vicki Nichols Goldstein, an advocate and founder of Inland Ocean Coalition. Vicki has worked diligently to make positive contributions to ocean protection. Vicki Nichols Goldstein is the latest guest on the Women Mind the Water Art of a Series podcast. The series can be viewed on womenmindthewater.com, Museum on Main Street, and YouTube. An audio-only version of this podcast is available on womenmindthewater.com, on iTunes, and Spotify. Women Mind the Water is grateful to Jane Rice for her use of her song, Women of Water. All rights for the Women Mind the Water name and logo belong to Pam Ferris Olson. This is Pam Ferris Olson.